Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Greetings, Auditorium 2. Across the way, you guys look stellar, per usual. If you are new here, we're especially glad to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship, please go out to the guest services space uh, in the commons over here by Auditorium One. We have a team there that would love to serve you and help you in any way that they could. And members and regulars, you know the drill. Pretty please go see our friends at Next Steps, also in the commons, also over here by Auditorium One. Uh, If you have any questions about service or mission opportunities, equipping or community opportunities, and everything in between, Uh, Additionally, if you are visiting with us or you are new here, one of the things that we want you to know is that on Sunday mornings, we are usually preaching and teaching straight through an entire book of the Bible. And we do this because we want to understand God's word the way that he gave it to us. And scripture, although sometimes I wish this weren't the case, or this was the case, scripture is not an arbitrary topical index whereby I look up two dozen verses on love and a dozen verses on uh, peace and I feel better about my day. That would sometimes I think be easier, but it's a little bit different. Scripture is instead a sacred library that tells a unified story that is coming true because of Jesus. And the great thing about this story that we have in the Bible is that it actually invites us to be a part of it by trusting and following Jesus. And so we think that studying books of the Bible like we got them helps us live in that story really well. And we are currently studying the New Testament book of James. James is way near the back of your Bible. If you get a revelation, take a left back there. James is actually Jesus's brother. And he is writing to his marginalized friends about what it looks like to persevere in faith. Like what does it look like to have an animated and an energized faith that clings to Jesus, that doesn't give way when life gets crazy, that doesn't yield when the pressure's on. So how does that faith, if you will, how does that faith work? And what should an active faith look like? These are the kinds of questions that James is addressing when he writes to his friends. And today we get to keep thinking about all this from James chapter three. So if you want to go ahead and get there in your Bibles, that will be good, great, wonderful, awesome, thank you. James chapter three, we will get there in a few minutes. James chapter three. Now, as you're finding your way there, uh, I think one of my favorite sermon series that we've ever done here at church is summer 2021. We did an entire series on words and the little tagline was, how God's word should shape our words. And it was deeply thoughtful and annoying because it was convicting. It was also really helpful and really, really practical. And today in James 3, we get to revisit some of that conversation because James has some pretty specific and also some pretty intense things to say about our words. But here's what we did uh, back in, in summer 21. Every week we started every sermon in that series with Proverbs 18. You can see there on the screens. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And this is a monumental statement if you think about it. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we talked at great length about how this should work itself out in our lives as apprentices of Jesus. 
And the more we considered words that summer, <clears throat> the more I, I started to think about the, the death and life thing. And so I want us to think together for a little bit uh, about that. Take a second and think about a time <clears throat> when somebody spoke life to you. Now, that might be an odd phrase, speak life, but maybe it sounded a little something like this. Let's say somebody looked you dead in the eye and they told you that they were thankful for you and they couldn't do it without you. Or maybe you were in high school and your dad sat you down and he told you exactly how proud he was of you for finishing strong and giving it your best even though he could see it was absolutely exhausting your soul. Or this is a miracle when, when your wife tells you how impressed she is with your composure and your patience as you juggle all of the insanity of life. Or maybe it's your friends or your community group and they're encouraging you on your difficult and long road of sobriety. Or perhaps it's, it's another family member or friend who shares a peace-giving scripture with you when you're going through a rough season and, and they minister God's grace to you in that way. Now, I could go on and on and on, but the point is, words like these, that's speaking life. These words build up and they sow life. They don't tear down and sow death, they build up and sow life. But, and this is the big but, I've been thinking about it, I've been meditating on it for over a year now, and here's what I've realized. Even if stuff like that is spoken over our lives, and it should be, you should be running your mouth like that to speak life to people. We need to be saying these kinds of things. And even if we do, if words like these lift our spirits and buoy up our souls in Jesus' name, here's the thing I've been thinking about. In my mind, it sure seems like words of death tear down more than words of life build up. Here's what I mean. Just Tiny little illustration. <clears throat> Meaning, if somebody speaks a word of, of life to you, like the stuff we just listed or, or other stuff, and you might be like, ah, oh, yes, yes. And you take three or four steps in your day, and not just I feel better about myself, but like spiritually you're like, yes, Lord, thank you, Lord. And you take two, three, four steps, and you're like, man, I needed that. And then that same day, that same day, somebody says something to you, and they slander you to your face, they discourage you, they talk down to you. That thing, that second thing, those words of death, if you will, make you take 10 or 12 steps backwards. Why is that the case? I, maybe that's just me. <clears throat> I got a hunch that it's a lot of us though. My dad is 70 years old <clears throat> and he said that when he rode the bus back when he was uh, a, a youngster in the 60s in the tobacco fields of small town South Carolina, he said everybody rode the bus, it was first graders all the way to 12th, grade, 12th graders. And one day when my dad was about 10 years old, he just goes and plops his little butt on down in the middle of the school bus and he was just doing it because, hey, I gotta go to school. But apparently there was a junior guy who sat there every day and my dad didn't know about it. So this junior guy gets on the bus and walks up to my dad and goes, hey, get up, starts yelling at my dad. My dad goes, what, what, and doesn't understand. And this junior guy just loses it on my dad and starts cussing at him and starts yelling at him and starts calling him names and starts saying super harsh stuff. I don't know if they gave a coffee, to, coffee to juniors in high school in the 60s. Maybe that would've helped a little bit. But he's just yelling at my dad, blessing him out. And my dad was telling me the story and he goes, son, I can still remember every single thing that that guy said to me that day. Every single thing, you ready? 60 years later. You feel that? Six decades. That's massive. And I don't know about you, but maybe you have a few episodes like that in your story that were even weightier than my dad's little ride in the bus episode. 
Maybe your dad would tell you that you were worthless and that you wouldn't amount to much, especially if you kept hanging out with those people or you kept that hobby that he thought was really stupid. Maybe, man, I hate this one. Maybe you grew up in a church that was really spiritually abusive and everything from your Sunday school teacher all the way to the pastor, when they spoke to you, they did it in such a way that today you are still drenched, soaked with shame because of their words. Or maybe maybe your mom used used to nag you all the time about the food that you ate and the clothes that you wore and then she would say things under her breath that she knew you were paying attention to and she would do it to degrade you and now you have no shot at any sense of a healthy confidence in your life. Maybe you had a coach or a teacher who told you to your face, dude, even if you give it your best, it's not good enough in here. You don't have a shot. Maybe you were called names by people who were different than you and their insecurity birthed insecurity in you. I remember when I was younger and I was on a ministry team, I suggested something that a few people on the team were like, hey, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And they were genuinely excited about the thing. But one of the more vocal members of the team responded uh, to my idea pretty negatively. And then that person, it moved from a response to the idea (coughs) to a response to me. And then they started saying stuff about my character and it hurt, it hurt me. And it wasn't just the comment that hurt, but the more I thought about the comment, I also thought, God, you know what? I probably do the exact same thing to other people and I don't even know it. God, have mercy on me. And beyond this, it's really, really sad and really, really strange that I can still bring up those words and how they made me feel almost with zero effort. And it makes me think, like, am I gonna be thinking about that comment 60 years after it was said? Like, are, are you gonna be thinking about the hurtful words from your parents or your peers decades, plural decades, after they were spoken? And the tragic news is, <clears throat> on a small level, maybe a line or two, yeah. And I don't know how to <clears throat> prove this except by experience, but as needed and awesome and good as words of life are, it still feels as though words of death are heavier somehow. They, they land on the heart with a little more sting and a little more density. And it sure seems like they tear down more, more than encouraging words build up. And why is that the case? Why do words feel more potent when they're negative than when they're positive? Now I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, if this were only interpersonal, like a few random relationships, just me and you, I feel like we could get a life coach in there and make it all better. But the sad thing is this is just how the world works. The way that you feel better about your team, I never do this, but the way you feel better about your team is to absolutely smack talk your rivals. It just helps you get by in life, right? That's just what you do. This is the way that commercialization often works. It tries to convince you that other products and other companies just aren't as good as what we got and what we're selling. And this is actually how we do politics now. This is, this is candidate A, the way that they campaign, their best campaigning is to absolutely trash talk, insult, and basically dehumanize candidate B, and we eat it up. And even though we know there's, there's no life there. Words of death surround and suffocate us and their power is as mysterious as it is alluring. And so we need to fight hard to understand them. 
But we likewise have to make sure that we're going out of our way to speak life and to sow life, encouraging people, appreciating people, supporting people, giving people hope with our words. And we have to do this not to feel better about ourselves, but we have to do this as a genuine response to God's grace to us in the gospel. And so this is our question before us today. Given everything that we just talked about, we need to ask why are words so powerful and what should we do about it? This is what we need to think about. Why are words so powerful and what should we do about it? Again, this is true of all of our words, but especially of the downward pool, like the siren song to use words of death. Why do, why does it feel way too easy to use negative words and why are they heavier when they hit? And all this should make us more resolved to speak life to people even though it's an uphill climb. Now again, every bit of this is an invitation to reframe how we think about our words when it comes to faithfully following Jesus and this is exactly what James wants us to think about this morning in James chapter three, verses one through 12. That is our passage for today, James chapter three, verses one through 12. And he is gonna help us answer our question, why are words so powerful and what should we do about it? James three, one to 12, here we go. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's perfect and able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits to the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Think about it, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, it's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it's set on fire by hell itself. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but nobody can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, if you have been tracking with us in James, you will know that James is all about faith under pressure, faith persevering, faith not just hearing the word, but doing the word. And last week, Charlie talked about how you can be a Christian, but your faith can actually be dead and useless. It's like your body having muscles, but you never ever stretching or training or lifting. Faith that never exercises isn't useful for good works to point to God's goodness. 
And then, and this is not by accident at all, the next thing James says after the faith and works passage at the end of two, the next thing he says is about the tongue, which is one of the strongest muscles in the body. And James wants us to directly think about our words as works. He wants us to do that or to glue the chapters together with the last line of two. Just as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith without words of life is also dead or To echo James 1, let everybody be quick to listen and slow to speak so that we can make sure we speak life to people. So how does James carry these ideas forward and how is this gonna help us with our question about why words are so powerful? Um, Here's what we're gonna do. James basically has this discussion in two separate paragraphs. He's got the one to five and he's got the six through 12 and he makes a point in each of those Paragraphs, And so I want to walk us through each of these paragraphs for a few minutes, and then this will help us land the plane on a thoughtful answer to our question about why words are so powerful um, and what we should do about them. Now, maybe you notice, James starts this whole discussion in a really weird place. He starts with teachers in verse one. Look at verse one, look. Not many of you should be teachers because you're gonna get judged more harshly. Now I read that and I have 11 teen questions, James. I've, James, Paul, you remember Paul? Paul, yeah, Acts 15, you remember. Paul said it was an honorable thing to be a pastor, teacher, preacher person. And I know you're using the like Jewish equivalent teacher rabbi word, but I feel like you're saying it's not so honorable, James. Uh, what's the deal? Well, in James's mind, why is it gonna be a little bit tougher for teacher preachers? Look, they get judged more strictly. James, another question, bud. Um, who, who judging? Who's doing the judging? <clears throat> well, is it by you guys, the church members? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You constantly judge everything. Charlie, Jason, and I always say, it just, it just gives me so much peace, really. <laughs> really does. <clears throat> but that's not even close to, like, problematic. Is God going to judge the teacher, preacher, pastor people? Oh, yeah. And in some terrifying way that I don't, No, totally. When we stand up here and speak from God's word, we kind of speak on his behalf and he's gonna hold us some kind of accountable for that, especially for teachers in those abusive churches. But the reason James starts here is that he knows that teachers and pastors are supposed to be holding out divine words of life for people. And if we drop the ball on that and it devolves into individualistic self-help and whiny exclusivity and guilt-laced moralism, if we're supposed to give people words of eternal life and then we just dangle in front of you some temporal antidote that doesn't work half the time, those are useless words that are useless works from a useless faith. And God protect us from that and God help us if we ever get there. But then... James throws out a little little buffer in verse two. Look at verse two. But we all stumble in many ways. So you know what? I'll I'll give you the Jim Thompson NIV on that. Give your pastor a break. There it is. We all stumble in many ways. In fact, if anyone doesn't stumble in what they say, they're completely perfect and mature in every single way. This is like a nudge to be gracious. Like, isn't it just a little bit ridiculous that you um, don't live up to the standards that you hold for other people? Like you give people standards and you don't even, you don't even get there. So think about it. <clears throat> the same ways that people have sinned against you with their words and the same ways that 
your boss and your coworkers have undercut you with words, the same ways that you've been bullied by people with, your, with words, you, you've probably done the same thing to others without even knowing it. And James is hinting at that when he's like, hey, hey, <clears throat> we all stumble. But the scary thing is, we're so quick to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and then to be suspicious of other people's words and motives. Hey, what do they mean by that? When in reality, it should be the other way around. We should be, hey, we should be a little hesitant and a little suspicious about our own motives and words. Why do you think he said, be slow to speak? Come on. We should be a little hesitant on our own words and then we should give other people the benefit of the doubt because maybe they're using hurtful words out of hurt in their own life. Now, you know what this is? Impossible. This is almost impossible to do. And so what does James do? He gives us two little word pictures to help us out about what we're really uh, dealing with here. He says that the tongue, verses three and four, is like a bit in a horse's mouth and it's like the rudder on a ship. Now, um, I don't want to brag about how cultured and high class I am. Those of you who know me know like, you know this, but Sarah and I had a date night a month or so ago, and James and Anna were at Grandma's house, and after supper, we scooted on down to the rodeo and Fountain Inn uh, for the first time, and we met up there with some friends. And one of my favorite things about my wife is that she, she likes to intentionally run jokes into the ground, and so multiple times that night, she's like, no, no, you can't fool me. This is not my first ro- no, sir. Like that, so that was really funny. <clears throat> we borrowed some cowboy hats. There we are. We borrowed some cowboy hats for some friends. Uh, but one of the first things they did <clears throat> at Rodeo here in Fountain Inn is, is they trotted out these 50 or 60 horses and they rode them all around the entire loop. And these horses were ridden by like eight and 10 year old kids and also 70 year old people just around this loop right here. And all they had to do to control the horse <clears throat> was just control the bit in the horse's mouth. And then came the fun stuff. We actually got to see like the power of these animals. It was unbelievable. The the majesty and sheer brawn of these beasts was very, very impressive. And it made me think either these riders are super dumb or super brave. Uh, I say dumb because I'm not on the horse, but they're probably just braver than me. Either way you slice it, super impressive. But here's what the riders know and experience that I don't. They know that that little bit in the horse's mouth can control the whole horse. They've experienced that little piece of rolled up steel that can have power over such a huge majestic animal. And that night, good old James's word picture was proved to me. That's verse three. And then what James does is he does a similar thing in verse four, he just flips it and he does the same thing with the ship. And some say, He includes the pilot of the ship as a like throwback to the teachers in verse one. But whatever the case, he makes sure to call the ship large, big old ship right there. But then he makes sure to call the rudder small. He wants us to see the minute nature of the rudder compared to the magnitude of the rest of the ship. So then he drops the metaphors and in verse five, he just says it all about the tongue itself. But the Greek is really fun, so I'm gonna say it. He says the tongue is small, which in Greek is mikros. That's where you get the word microphone. 
<laughs> but the, the tongue does big things, and the big is megas, like mega. So James says in verse five that the tongue, the power of the tongue is so strange because it's a micro entity that makes a mega difference, either for good or for ill. <clears throat> so here's the point of the first paragraph in James. The point of this paragraph is not to be like, yo, 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 the tongue is powerful, words can sting, so just chill out, shut up, and be careful. That's not it, that's not it. It's that we have to recognize that the power of the tongue is in opposite proportion to its size. It's asymmetrical, if you will. All right, Jim, I, I think I know what you're saying, but that's it's just an idea. <clears throat> it's not gonna help me when I run my mouth on Wednesday. Well, <clears throat> let me nuance the wording for you. Here it is. James is teaching us that we think we are in control of our words, but the truth is, in a very real way, they are in control of us. This is terrifying. Now, I don't wanna to try to over-explain this because I think that's why James gives the two word pictures. We think that we are in control of our words, but the truth is, in a very real way, our words control us. This is, hey, this is what the teachers are getting judged for in verse one. Words they have spoken, and, and then those spoken words, in a sense, control the judgment. Like you can't take words back, you can't shove them back in your mouth, that'd be great. You can't do that. When my mama used to teach this passage to fifth and sixth graders, she would break them up into small groups and give them all a little travel size thing of toothpaste and make them squeeze every single drop out that they could. And then she'd go, all right, every group gets a toothpick and now see how much toothpaste you can shove back into the little thing. And these little fifth and sixth graders would use their, lose their mind and now they're in therapy because of it. So way to go, mom. <laughs> but that's what they would do. And the insanity that would ensue was, was hilarious. The point is, when our words are just out there, we can't put them back, but they also become the measure by which we're judged. They become the instrument by which we are controlled. They are the bit in your mouth, your spoken words, and the rudder on the ship of your life. That's the power that James is talking about when he talks about the tongue. And we usually think about how, we, we did this, we already talked about this. We usually think about how other people's words control us, whether for good or for ill. And that's legit, that's real, that's actual, that happens. But James is talking about how, look, we don't realize it, but our words have a control over us that is peculiar and under the surface. And I don't know about you, but that makes me wanna take a deep breath and think twice before I, uh, I open my fat mouth, right? Because I like to run my mouth. Even, hey, even if it's good and encouraging stuff, I don't wanna just let it fly. I wanna speak as much life as possible to people when I open my mouth. And this matters big time because don't forget, it's an uphill climb. And that's, that's James's second paragraph in verses six through 12. Now, as Jesus's brother, sometimes I'm like, bro, why aren't you a little bit more positive and uppity and hope-filled? Because he, he has a super negative view on words here in verses six through 12. 12. I think he feels the same ache that we do. Like why do words of death tear down more than words of life build up? I feel like he's exploring that. <clears throat> and in order to think about these things, James actually gives us six more word pictures. Here they are in order in verses six through 12. First, the tongue is like a small spark that sets an entire forest on fire. That's, uh, that's verses um, five and six there. And he says, the tongue is set on fire, look, by hell itself, which is absolutely crazy. We'll come back to that. Second, he says the tongue is like an untamable animal. 
And it's not that the tongue is an unbroken horse, it's that the, the tongue is itself unbreakable. You can't do it, you can't tame it. And then third, actually uh, for three, four, five, and six, he just does questions for all of these. Third, does a fresh spring give salt water? Well, no, James. Does a fig tree give olives? No, no, James. Fifth, does a grapevine give us figs? James. Six, does a salt pond give fresh, James, come on, we get it. He's doing something, he's driving the point home. And these last four questions are about how messed up it is that we use our mouths for opposite things. Like it doesn't make any sense that, hey, hey, in the same day you speak life and speak death. Look at verse nine, he does this in verse nine. With it, we bless our Lord and Father and we curse people made in his likeness. Doesn't make any sense. Verse 10, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Now, with these six word pictures, James moves from the uncontrollable nature of the tongue as like a wildfire or a wild animal to the confounding nature of the tongue, that it is itself self-contradictory. But right in the middle of this second paragraph, right in the middle of the section, James gives us clues as to why negative words seem to have a greater weight. We know that words have a unique power. That's the first paragraph. But here, words of death seem to have more allure in this second section. So let's just look at a couple things. <clears throat> Notice verse seven. When James mentions all the animals that he mentions, he mentions them in the same order as the first chapter of the Bible. Animals that creep on the ground, fly in the sky, and swim in the sea. That's not random. That's the Genesis echo. Now look at verse nine. <clears throat> I would underline these two words. When James talks about blessing and cursing, that's not a random uh, pair that he's using. Those are the dominant categories for life in Genesis one through three. Life like God intended, bless, intended it, blessing, <clears throat> and life after we fell from it, the curse thing. But how did we fall from it? What was, in Genesis, what was the mechanism of our rebellion? Pause on that. <clears throat> After James lists the animals, look at what he says in verse eight. Look, look, look at verse eight. Nobody can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil <clears throat> full of deadly poison. Well, James, horses don't have poison <clears throat> and birds don't spew venom. And I don't think that fish regularly bite people with fatal toxins, but snakes, snakes, we know that they can be full of deadly poison. <clears throat> so what is James doing? He's trying to draw our minds back to the catastrophe in the Garden of Eden when the serpent deceived us. But how did he do it? What was the mechanism of our rebellion in Genesis 3? Do you remember? You, you ready? This is what he did. He goes, hey, did God really say? Which means the first sin in the history of the universe was about words. The snake took God-given words of life and then he just put a little question mark right out beside him. He twisted God's word and without us knowing it, set the whole course of life on a downward spiral. That's verse six. King James says, it setteth on fire the entire course of nature. So now, apart from God's mercy, our native tongue is to speak death. Now listen, 
This is why it is way too easy to gossip about somebody when they are not there. This is why slander and outrage are totally and socially acceptable. This is why it's way easier to be a cynic and a skeptic and a critic. This is why it's harder work to say positive and encouraging things to people. This is why lies are often more seductive than the truth is beautiful. This is why the teacher preachers are gonna get judged more strictly. This is why complaining is often more natural to you than gratitude. This is why we think being obnoxious is a way to be right. This is why grumbling is somehow congratulated in our day. This is why being whiny gets attention. This is why words of death tear down more than words of life build up. This is why James says the tongue is set on fire by hell itself because the enemy has taken the gift of words and made death its parasite. That's what he has done. And this is exactly why my dad can remember 60 years later. And so now we gotta be more careful than we can fathom when we use words. So quick summary of the second paragraph here. Here we go, this is six through 12. God ordained words to be powerful vehicles of life and flourishing, but the enemy has twisted them to be corrupting tools of death and deterioration. Again, this is second paragraph, verses six through 12. God ordained words to be powerful vehicles of life and flourishing, but the enemy has twisted them to be corrupting tools of death and deterioration. And this to me just completely reinterprets so much, so, so much, explains so much. It explains that when somebody expresses pure gratitude for you, when your dad told you he was proud of you, when your spouse praises your patience, when your friend or your community group lifts you up with words, all those, those things are good and true and beautiful because God designed words to be seeds that grow into trees that fill the world and make it Eden all around. That's the way it's supposed to be. But the snake hijacked words and now words are one of his main ways that he is seeking to fill the world with death and Destruction. This is why it is always a war when it comes to our words. And I know I feel this, and I'm gonna go ahead and roll the dice and say that you do too. So, <clears throat> summary. All of us know through experience that words have a special power, a unique, weird, special value and power. <clears throat> we know that. We also know that there's a special mystery to why Hurtful words sting more than encouraging words heal. And James responds to both of these. First, the power of words is so strange because we think we control our tongues, but a lot of times they control us. That's one through five. And second, because of the enemy's deception, words that were meant for life are now seasoned with death. And this means that before we open our mouths, we are starting in the negative. So, what in the world do we need to do about this and how should it change the way we think about our words and the way that we use our words? Wish I had an extra hour here and this could be a conversation. So I just have a few suggestions really briefly, just three ideas, here we go. One, before you speak, think about any way in which your words may be interpreted as hurtful. Now, this might seem obvious, but you'd be surprised, so we shouldn't presume 
we have to start to develop a filter that we put our thoughts through before they become words. Think in your head, no matter how I mean it, is there any way that what I'm saying might tear down instead of build up? And you're like, Jim, that feels superfluous. It feels like too much. It feels like too much work. Hey, be slow to speak. Hopefully it'll help us do that. Number two, learn to say thank you and I'm sorry and then pray to God that you mean both of them. Gratitude paves the way to words of life, to living there. It does, gratitude does that. And I'm sorry, to say I'm sorry is a way to repent of words of death and hopefully like your mama taught you, don't say I'm sorry if, no, that's a no-no. Don't say I'm sorry if, say I'm sorry and then pray that you would mean it. I'm just at the point in my life, maybe this is just me personally, but I think if you're faithfully following Jesus, these two short little sentences need to be on regular rotation in your mouth, regular rotation. Third, fight to bless God and others with your words. Fight to bless God and others with your words. I get this from verse 10. This is why we were created. This is the reason we exist. But because of the parasite of death, it's like trying to climb up hills, it's like trying to run in the mud, and that's why it's a fight. Fight to praise him, fight to bless him, fight to be grateful to him, fight to worship him. And then fight and strive to do the same to other people. You're gonna have to fight to encourage people to comfort them, to commend them, to affirm them, to uplift them to God and to speak life to them with your words. So think about any way your words could be hurtful. Two, learn to say thank you and I'm sorry and try to mean them. And three, fight to bless God and others with your words. And this is just tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that we need to think about as we, as we consider the gift of words and how they're often polluted. Now at this point, I wanna have a conversation with the enemy, the self-appointed Lord of words. Like the White Witch in C.S. Lewis's Narnia who only knew of the deep magic where Words seem to be naturally bent on death. If we look back before the dawn of time, in the stillness, there is a deeper magic. As John the Evangelist says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things came to be through the Word, and in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome it or grab a hold of it or comprehend it. This light is the word of life that the darkness can't grasp and that death can't stop. This divine speech, this word became flesh and dwelt among us and he took the parasite of death unto himself for us. Or as Lewis says, the deepest magic is when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, death itself would start working backwards. Meaning God's truest and purest word is himself in the person of Jesus. And he has taken all of the death and destruction of our hearts and words and emptied them of their power so that we can know the word of life, so that we can speak words of life, so that flourishing and not destruction would be our native tongue. And this is rock solid foundation for simple little things like having a filter in Jesus' name. The message of Jesus is the only real source of gratitude or apology or encouragement. 
It's an unending fountain of blessing, grace upon grace upon grace, divinely spoken over you. And follow me here, the word of the gospel does not take away the memories of hurtful words, but gives you a way to interpret them whereby they don't sink into your heart, whether spoken by you or to you. By faith, Jesus, as God's word, gives you an identity that no human words can take away, and it does not matter how loud your dad yelled. Jesus, as the word of life, gives you a security that words of death cannot overcome, and it doesn't matter how many times they said it to you. And obviously, all of this reignites our commission to speak life to people. And when we do, with our words, when we hold them up into the light of Christ, we get to share in its beauty and its glory because that light has conquered a darkness that often feels way too close. So, when Proverbs 18 talks about death and life in the power of the tongue, that should make us sit back and think about God's tongue that has definitively spoken about death and life at the cross. And then that should make us do a total renovation on how we use our own words. And I'm pretty sure James is trying to nudge us to something like this. So Fellowship Greenville, I've got really, really good news for you. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and in him was life. Life that can be ours by trusting him and life that we can speak to others in order to glorify him. And today I hope you believe that and I hope you want that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make us a church that speaks life, that we would be a beacon of speaking grace and truth to others in our community. Make us that kind of church family, please. That we would live and speak and sing and testify to the word of life, you, Jesus, and all that we have in you. Holy Spirit, please forgive us of our careless words of death and now take our lives, take our words and make them building blocks for the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Jesus, we ask these things for your sake and for your fame. We love you a lot. You're the best. Amen.